What's that noise? It's my drink bottle. I just wanted to do it into the mic so that Andrew could hear. Disgusting. Um, Is that delicious? Oh, that was delicious. It took me a while to realize what was happening. <laughs> I was like, is there a fly in here? <laughs> You. I'm good. How are you? You weren't ready for me to start. I was not, were you? but now I am. Yeah, <laughs> you did almost like a like, like a cartoon <laughs> double take, like a spit take. Is that what it is? Yeah, double take. Yeah. Oh, okay. If I had water in my mouth, it might have been a spit take. Interesting. Mm. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to my favorite musical, the podcast. Yes, it's been a while. Yeah, that's Ruth. That's Josephine. We're your hosts. It has been a while. We had a little break over New Year's, yeah. and we are moderately refreshed because of it. Yeah, I felt like I had a little holiday. Did you? Yeah. Good. I didn't go anywhere. I felt like I did more work on other things that are still not quite having a rest. But yeah, but you don't you know do. how to rest. I don't. I'm very bad at resting. Last holidays I said to Josephine that she has to schedule rest days into her holidays and she still didn't fucking do no, it. No, I didn't. Even when Ruth <laughs> yells at me, yeah. I don't do it. Uh, um, so, Ruth, what do we do here? What is this? Well, uh, mostly we tell each other about our favourite musicals. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. This is episode 38. Yeah. Because we're not really – it's not really a second season, is it? No, we just had a little break. We just had a break. It's just it's just episode 38. Yeah. that's Yeah, it's a perfect time to come back. We are, though, changing up our format – not format, like our release schedule a little bit yeah. this year. So because of COVID, uh, Ruth had a lot more time on I her sure hands. I sure did. And so we were able to give you so much amazing stuff. <laughs> And now that the world is still fucked, but businesses Australia are is sort of somewhat yeah. coming back to normal. <laughs> we're um we're not going to be releasing episodes as often, so we will have on one week we'll have a full episode uh, with our two favorite musicals, and then on the other week we will have a mixed. Yeah, so every Monday you'll still get something new. Yes, um, but it just won't be two episodes in one week. It'll no. be one episode and a week. Stop making us stop it. <laughs> but hopefully it'll give you all a chance to catch up on. Um, what we've released so far. And also a chance then to listen and engage with the musicals themselves. Yes, exactly. So we're actually doing, we're actually doing you a favour. Yes. And we've got so much planned. Like we have already written down all our musicals. It takes us into 2022. It's pretty cute. Yeah, hey? it's our spreadsheet. Cute. Yeah, our spreadsheet's <laughs> amazing. I love a spreadsheet. <laughs> uh, so do you have any apologies for us? I just, I'm sorry that we've been away for a few weeks. That was my apology too. Was it? I'm We're not cute. actually genuinely sorry about it though because I think it's important to set boundaries. 100%. And that is a boundary that I set with this podcast. Yeah. That I needed a week off, two yeah. weeks off. Uh, what's your spotlight today? My spotlight. Mm-hmm. So my spotlight is inspired. <clears throat> Ready? By Ratatouille the TikTok musical. Oh, nice. The Ratatouille which I watched. <laughs> is that your name for it? Or no, that's people what people call it. Call it. Yeah. It's such a cute name, the Ratatouille I know, it's so good, isn't it? I love it. Um, which I watched live when it was released, bought my ticket and watched it, which was great. Yeah. Uh, and I loved it. I loved the whole concept and everything. And one of the things in it is that the orchestra that played for it were called the Broadway Sinfonietta. Symphonietta. Yeah, which That's is a nice such, word. such a great word, yeah, right? Yeah, I like that. Um, so they are an all-women-identifying majority women of colour orchestral collective. Oh, wow. And they were the, they were the orchestra for Ratatouille, Ratatouille the, t- the TikTok musical, yep. Uh, and their mission is to support the existence, excellence and equity of female BIPOC musicians, orchestrators and contractors in the Broadway industry. Oh, love it. Love it, right? Yeah, like I was like, oh, my God. Oh. Yeah. So – um, they also, I was looking at their website and they give some stats on there. So in the past 20 years alone, so like not even including before then, for approximately 450 orchestration credits, Broadway hired approximately 190 total orchestrators. Of those, 90.5% were white male orchestrators. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah. And literally, literally 0% were women BIPOC orchestrators. Fuck. Yeah. So, like, there's a small percentage that are women, there's a small percentage that are men of colour, 
Um, and never the twain shall yes, meet. exactly. Jesus. Um, and they also say, talking about music contractors, so they're the people who are like hire the or- like the people yeah. that play in the orchestras um, in the Broadway pits, and there have only ever been two female music contractors in the history of Broadway and neither of them are, is a woman of colour. Oh, wow. Yeah, isn't that insane? <gasps> it's not insane? No, like you're it right, not, it's not. It's, it's not. It's just another area where people, we're fucking it up. Yeah, so anyway, that's their, that's their wow. mission and um, – um, yeah, I think. And I were mean, they good? They were so good. And, like, it was actually wonderful that they had a proper orchestra play for this musical. Yes, that's really so, cool. Um, yeah, anyway, they're doing amazing work. Um, Sinfonietta. I Sinfonietta. love Sinfonietta. Isn't name. that amazing? Yeah. And I really hope that, yeah, I hope that it is a bit of a wake-up call to that part of the industry as well. Definitely. Yeah. Nice. And that I really loved good. that they picked them to do the Ratatouille. Oh, so good. Ah. Oh. Thank you for that. No worries. My spotlight today is another amazing article from HowlRound, which I'm in love with. So it's mainly focused about on streaming and particularly the concept of just transitions. I've decided that next week I'm going in the next episode, I'm going to talk to you more about just transitions, but I don't um, know what that means. I'm going to explain. Okay. So this article is written in HowlRound by VJ Matthew, a person who is so thoughtful and intelligent that I was like intimidated reading the article because it was so smart and so, so important. Um, I'm going to link to it so you can actually read his words because he's so much smarter and more eloquent than I am. But it's basically about climate justice in theatre, a topic that I began exploring in our last episode when I talked about greening of the war yeah. at Sydney Theatre Company. Um, the general gist is that we need to start becoming aware of our footprint when we stream or meet virtually, um, as most theatre has now sort of become. Some things I had never considered or addressed in the article, particularly what the actual environmental cost of our reliance on technology is. And I think like in an abstract sense, I understood that, but it was not really a part of my consciousness that what we do every day and interact with technology is having a huge impact on the environment. Yeah. So um, what's incredible is that he actually goes into quite a bit of detail about what your carbon footprint is when you participate in some sort of online event. For every gigabyte of data that someone consumes or produces by participating in a video conference or listening to a podcast or watching a live stream or streaming a video, the estimate is that that equates to at least 855 grams of carbon dioxide emissions. Right. Which is just like, oh, okay, wow. Yeah. What I had failed to consider is how the small things that I do every day have a potentially disastrous impact on the world. And as we know, the impact of these behaviours will first be felt by the most marginalised and least responsible for them. Yeah. So like the poor, those in the third world, et cetera, the ones yeah. who are going to be the first to feel the the impacts of our behaviours. Um, this article discusses ways in which we can be more mindful and also the theory behind the Just Transitions framework, which, like I said, I will talk about in a future episode because it deserves a lot more more space um, but have a listen to this quote about our carbon footprint uh, quote if we approach a budget as a moral document expressing one's values the question of what is an acceptable carbon budget situates us in a predicament as the answer we all need this to be given the consequences of propagating our status quo business as usual arts programming is zero mm. and so the article really challenged me that like even right now, what I'm doing right now, recording this podcast and what you are doing listening to it is not contributing to a zero carbon footprint. Yeah. And that's challenge that really challenged me. Yeah. And so it's not just that we're just consuming content that's there anyway. Every time I click on a video or open up my phone, I am actually producing more carbon dioxide emissions. It's it- the other thing that I think is interesting is because what I've been thinking about a lot is, um, you know, obviously in previous years I've often had, say, two overseas trips a year yeah. for work, right, yeah. where I go to London and New York and I have meetings and I see shows and all those sorts of things. Yeah. And the, you know, a lot of those meetings are now happening over Zoom that they yes. ne- never would have before. No. Maybe we would have had a phone call every now and then, but now like Zoom is just such a part of everyone's lives. Yeah. And if we are having those meetings over Zoom and I say only have to go once a year eventually, once, you know, all Broadway and the West End reopens Mm. and it becomes like, well, how much did we save in terms of like the carbon emissions of those trips that as actually, well? He goes into a lot of detail about that on, on in this article because there's been a lot of discourse about that and about that, well, this is positive. We're not travelling as much. Yeah. Like I'm going to a conference online instead of in person so I'm saving that jet fuel or whatever. And what is really fascinating that I hadn't considered is that, yes, 
Probably your carbon footprint as a result of attending an online conference rather than an in-person conference is slightly less. However, it is very difficult for us to actually calculate the true cost of it because of the number of people and times that are actually that like um, some sort of behaviours are involved in an online event. Mm. So, for example, if you actually just catch a plane, it's really easy to find out what your emissions are. So you can find online calculators for all this sort of stuff. So you can really easily find the calculations. If you participate in, say, like a live streamed theatre event, you cannot calculate your own impact because you don't know what has gone into the event on the other side. Mm. So the actual making of that event, there are many different like elements of it, what the impact of that has been and then what the impact of you watching it in your particular area or what the offset of your particular provider is and so it becomes a lot more convoluted because we don't actually know and we can't calculate correctly so it's more about like we can't calculate how to offset it is really the issue exactly because we don't know what it is yeah all we know is that it's not zero yeah and the argument is definitely like okay we're all online now and that's great but we're still not at zero Mm. and and we need to be actually mindful that we're not improving anything by not traveling nothing's getting better do you know what I mean yeah so it was just a really really challenging article for me yeah that's really interesting yeah so I've I've linked to that have a look and like I said next time I will talk more about the just transitions framework which is not specific to theatre but I've I just think it's a really important idea that we should talk about okay cool awesome thank you uh, theatre explained. Yeah, we're going to talk about what off Broadway and off West End means. Yeah, yeah. So off Broadway is pretty simple. It's interesting because I think off West End is pretty simple. Do you? Well, I think off West End is simple in that it doesn't. It's not really like a quantitative thing. Yes, there's no <laughs> definition for off West End. But off Broadway has a strict definition. That's right. Mm. So um, we've we've probably mentioned this on on the podcast before, but there is very clear definitions for what. Off, off Broadway, off Broadway, and Broadway are, and mm. that is to do with the size of the theatres. There's the number of seats in the theatre. Yes. So, so yeah, you, you go. go. Well, off Broadway is any theatre in Manhattan. Firstly, with a seating capacity between 100 and 499. That's right. And the term off Broadway, like, has has meant different things at different times, and I can talk about that more, but. That's what it is now. Yeah. It's very straightforward in and that way. And then so Broadway is 500 seats or more and off-off-Broadway is 0 to 99 That's seats right. basically. Yeah. But, yeah, like, uh, for example, I didn't actually realise that, um, you know, until, was it until, oh, what was the year? <sighs> I, I didn't have it written down. No. But um, there was a point at which it became that, the seating. Yeah, but it wasn't about the actual but it, location anymore. It used anymore. to be the location. It used to be if you were between um, 40th North to 54th Street and from yeah, 6th and Avenue from 6th. West to 8th Avenue, including Times Square and West 42nd Street, yeah. was the Broadway box. Exactly. So the term off-Broadway used to refer just to theatres which intersected Broadway, so which weren't really um, on Broadway itself but which intersected yeah. it. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because now, as we know, that is that doesn't really exist. Like yeah. So there's not really those sorts of um, of like geographical. Yeah, exactly. Um, what am I trying like to say? Like restrictions yeah, exactly. kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Regulations. But like off West End is just, it w- it's also called the fringe or the London fringe. Yeah, and, and it really is a very recent term. Like, very. Like I did not, re- growing up it no. was not a term that was used. Well, I saw like in some of my research it's like as recent as like 2000 and something. Yeah, you know what exactly. I mean? Like 2011. Well, or- for example, the, the Off West End Theatre Awards, known as the Offies, have only been awarded since 2011. Yeah, that's for right. For example, so. It yeah, does and say definitely that venues. F- French theatre has been around forever. Oh, yeah. Like, I just think that that's what they used to call it. Definitely. Yeah. Um, there is sort of like a, a fairly loose rule that venues off West End range in size from 40 to 400 seating capacity. Yeah. So generally bigger than 400 is not off West End. Yeah. But then as we know, West End theatres uh, are not about seating capacity no. either. So they're that slightly is about different. location. That's right. There have, have to be, be in the West on End. The West yeah. End. But um, yeah, it, it's just interesting because it's now becoming terminology that we're used to hearing. Yeah. Off West End less, I think. Like we yeah. don't really hear that as much. No. It's more no. fringe, but yeah. Exactly. Interesting. And um, for Off Broadway, I just noted that the awards that can be given to an Off Broadway show are the New York Drama Critics Circle Award, the Outer Critics Circle Award, the Drama Desk Award, the Obie Award, the Lucille Lortel Award, and the Drama League Award. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much everything except the Tonys. That's right. <laughs> Which is specifically for Broadway. That's right. So, yeah. That's nice. That's been Theatre Explained. Indeed. Um, all right. I have some recommendations. Excellent. Okay, look. This is a really tenuous link. Okay. <laughs> you should probably watch Bridgerton. <laughs> 
if you haven't already, and I'm sure you have, but here are the reasons. Firstly, there is a musical theatre reason. The absolutely delicious and divine and very handsome Jonathan Bailey plays <laughs> um, Viscount Bridgerton, who has some serious sexy sideburns. Um, Jonathan Bailey won the Olivier Award for his portrayal of Jamie in the gender-swapped company on the West End, which I talked about in our company episode. Yeah. Um, and, and he was he amazing. He was amazing, that's right. Also another reason why you should watch it is that the the books the series is based on are personal favourites of mine Yeah, because I'm trashy, but I'm also a bit of a fancy bitch. Yeah. Um, anyway, Bridgerton's on Netflix. I think everyone in the world has probably seen it by now, but yeah. I'm on my second watching because I love it so much. Yes. I love it. But I also love screen adaptations of books that aren't terrible and this one is not terrible. Okay. Yeah. As in the the books aren't terrible, the screen adaptation's not terrible. Both. Well, I obviously really love the books, but generally I'm disappointed by screen adaptations. Yes. Not this one. No. Which is amazing. No. Um, I Also, I didn't watch Ratatouille, the Ratatouzical um, but it has amazingly generated $2 million for the Actors and it's Fund. It's like the biggest Actors Fund yes, fundraiser ever. The biggest in the history. Yeah. Of it. But you can't watch it anymore, can you? No. No, so it sorry. It was for like oh, two days or five days or yeah, something like that. It was from like the that. 1st of January to the 4th. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, and now it's gone. Yeah. Soz. But it was so, you know, it was only, it was like pay what you want yeah. for the tickets, um, I think starting from $5. And, yeah, all went to the Actors Fund. The creators were um, compensated for their time. Oh, I love it. Did you know that one of the composers was from, I think, Bathurst? Really? Yeah, she was just this girl from, yeah, Australia. That is so cool. Isn't it awesome? I love that. Yeah. Um, okay, one other recommendation. And Netflix has just released its 2021 movie trailer and you can see oh, yes. a glimpse a tiny, tiny, It's so quick, but I got excited. of the upcoming Tick, Tick, Boom. Did um, you know when it comes out? No. I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell either. So we're talking about the Tick, Tick, Boom film adaptation directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, um, which is coming out sometime this yeah. year. And starring Andrew Garfield as, yeah, who, as Jonathan. So he, this, when I say tiny glimpse, it's like Lin's on the trailer and he says something and then there's like, it's like half a second of Andrew Garfield on the screen. Yeah. But it still looks great. I'm so excited. So I'm pumped for that. Pumped. Oh, yeah. Do so you have keen. any recommendations? I do. For I have us? a few. Ready? Um, so, firstly, this recording has been released quite recently. Um, it's two song cycles that Aaron's and Flaherty wrote. Ooh. Yeah. And it's been released as an album called Legacy. And it's made up of basically demos that they made. One was recorded, they were both recorded, sorry, in 2004. Oh, wow. And one is called 1859 A Farmer's Diary. And it stars um, the beautiful Marin Mazzi, who has sadly passed away since, oh. and her husband, Jason Daniele, um, and Stephen Flaherty at the piano. It was recorded in April 2004. And the other one is called A Boy With A Camera, and that was um, also recorded in 2004. And it's the sweet Stephen Pasquale, who we love, mm. and Sarah Uriart Berry is the female vocalist. So how do we listen to them? It's on Spotify. Really? I'm going to link it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I assume other places as well, but I'll link the Spotify. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know about that at all. Yeah, I just every now and then I check Playbill has a upcoming cast recordings page. Oh yeah. And they say what's coming out soon, but they also say what's recently been released. Nice. And every now and then I'm like, because it's not the sort of thing you necessarily hear about. When, that might not have and like so a And so I just coming. check that page every now yeah. and then and see either when things are coming out or have you listened to them? I have. Yeah, they're lovely. I mean they're like they're demo recordings. Yeah. Um so it's just piano and everything. But obviously it's Aaron's and Flaherty, so it's very listenable. Yeah. Very easy to listen to. And great performers and too. And great performers, yeah. Jeez, yeah. that's a good one. What else have um, you got? And a couple of others. So one is kind of inspired by the other. But the first one is one of my favourite YouTube clips of all time. I And I was sort of reminded of the existence of it. So uh, I don't necessarily think The Greatest Showman is the best film of all time. No. Um, but that clip, the, the clip, and you'll know what clip I'm talking about, is when they were doing a staged reading of the show. Um, like the before orchestra, the film right? got. Um, yeah. It's not. It's no, it's just piano, I think. Oh, is it? But there's a lot of vocalists, and it's like uh, when they were trying to get the film greenlit. Yeah. So it's just in like a rehearsal studio in New York. And they're all like, and in casual they tell the story and... of how Hugh Jackman had just had a skin cancer cut out of his nose, so he couldn't sing. So Jeremy Jordan was singing the part yeah. um, uh, of um, uh, P. Barnum. P. D. Barnum. Um, and 
but then like it gets to from now on, which is of course like the 11 o'clock number in the film and he can't help himself and he starts to sing. And it's this, and you know, like every amazing vocalist you've heard is there like Cynthia Erivo is singing and like Kiala Settle and like even like Natalie Weiss is there as like one of the backing vocalists. It's amazing. It's just like a ridiculous group of people singing. It just makes you feel like, ah. This is living. Yeah. This is and life. It is, it is just a, a purely joyous. theatrical, joyous moment. Yeah. So I'm linking to that. But the reason I was reminded of that video is a couple of weeks ago, Jeremy Jordan released the video It's and it's a clip from one of his one-man shows that he's done. And it's like a 13-minute clip. So it's like a fair whack. But it's him telling the story of his involvement in that sort of oh, workshop cool. because he actually did the demos for um Pasek and Paul like yeah. before then um of of the whole of the thing yeah, yeah. Nice. of Barnum before Hugh Jackman was was on board yeah. and he was actually tapped to be the Zac Efron role oh. um and then and, and so when he did that that workshop, that stage reading, he was singing both parts Shit. in that thing because he was already going to be singing the Zac Efron and he's um, bit. And then, yeah, they ended up at the last oh, minute getting him to sing that. And, and apparently he found out like he like overheard a conversation like at the end of that that's like, oh, yeah, Hugh's talking to Zac Efron about being in it. And so, and so yeah, he's like – but it's all kind of about him reclaiming. He sings little bits of different things from the show during the 13 minutes. How disappointing for him. Yeah, but it's actually it's actually a really kind of wonderful story yeah, also. Nice. Like he tells it really well and so I'm going to link to that as well. Oh, yeah, definitely worth – I mean, I just – I just think he is such an incredible performer, he's Jeremy Jordan. Wonderful. Yeah. He's freakishly talented. I could watch. I would. I mean, I would have loved to have seen that one man show. Like, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, mm. so good. Lucky you can watch that personalized video that he made you. I did. Yes. Yeah, so for my birthday last year, all my friends bought me a cameo from Jeremy Jordan. Yeah. And he did me sing. Um. Did me sing. He used to be mine. Yeah. He did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Love him. Uh, do you want to hear about a musical? I do. Can you talk to me about a musical? I'm going to talk to you about Honeymoon in Vegas. Yes. Yeah. Another musical I shamefully just sort of missed when it first came out. Did you? Yeah. Like I just didn't. Well, it wasn't very popular, let's That's be honest. Right. Yeah. Um, I think it's a proper travesty because this is by our second in command, Jason Robert Brown. Um, sweet JRB. Sweet JRB. Who follows me on Twitter. <laughs> Yes, you say that every time we mention. I will say it every time. You shouldn't be ashamed. No. Um, I don't know when I first interacted with it or listened to it, but it was certainly not very long ago. No. And I love it. I love this show. It's great. It's so good. I just think this is a delightful musical with so much to love, and I don't think it gets the credit it deserves. I'm going to tell you why. So. Uh, Honeymoon in Vegas is a 2013 book musical by Andrew Bergman and Jason Robert Brown based on the 1992 film of the same name. Plot. If you've seen the movie, the plot is almost completely identical. So skip ahead 15 seconds if you have. But otherwise, Jack Singer and his girlfriend of five years, Betsy Nolan, are in love and they're ready to get married. When he goes to buy her a ring, Jack has this sudden panic attack and remembers that his mother's dying wish was that he never get married because no woman could ever love him as much as she does. <laughs> that is some like. It's mad toxic. Yeah. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> so Betsy can't just like wait around indefinitely for Jack to get his shit together because she wants to get married and start a family, etc. Um, he decides that they'll elope to Las Vegas, which will hopefully make the whole thing a lot easier, I suppose. Um, and when they get there, this wealthy older gambler named Tommy Corman is immediately taken with Betsy. Apparently she is like the spitting image of his late wife, Donna, who died of skin cancer. Um, he decides to steal Betsy away from Jack and engineers a poker match where Jack will lose and therefore owe him. And in exchange for actual payment, Tommy will suggest that he spend the rest of the weekend with Betsy. Very like indecent proposal, but sort of screwball-y. Mm. Um, Betsy's furious with Jack for gambling instead of getting married. So she leaves with Tommy and they go to Hawaii. Um, sort of seemingly like, she's like, yeah, whatever. I'll just go with him. Um, Jack follows them. Shenanigans ensue in Hawaii. Betsy is persuaded to marry Tommy because Tommy's like, this guy's terrible for you. Like you should just marry me. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, Jack is desperately trying to get to Betsy. The whole thing culminates in Jack skydiving into Betsy's waiting arms and getting married on the spot. Yeah. 
there's lots of problems in there. I'm very aware. I'll talk about them. <laughs> um, so some background. Firstly, let's start with the film. You yeah. haven't seen it, have you? No, I've never seen the film. Interesting. I think the film is actually like a ripper of a film. Okay. If you're in Australia, you can watch it on Stan. And apart from Nicolas Cage and his incredibly unconvincing performance. Oh, and really? the rampant sexism of the plot. Oh, yeah, Nicolas Cage is so bad. Ruth. Oh, really? And like I'm not a fan, but I'm, I'm not like I don't just hate him unnecessarily. But yeah. He is, like so awful in this film. I don't sort of, I mean, maybe this is because I'm like too young to have seen his earlier film career, mm-hmm. but I don't think of him as being in like romantic comedies. No. <laughs> I think of like Well, I mean, he was good face as, off yeah, and like Yeah, that's true. That's you know. True. It's so I think he's so hit and miss. Like I really liked him in Captain Crowley's Mandolin and there's that film Leaving Las Vegas that he won the well, Oscar an, for. And adaptation is yes. one of my favourite films. Yeah, you love that film. Yeah. Also, because I said to Shane last night, we're gonna watch Honeymoon in Vegas. And he's like, Oh no, I've seen that. But I'll watch it with you. And then it started and straight away he's like oh, this is not what I remember, and he thought we were watching Leaving Las Vegas, which is a very different film. So this is not Leaving Las Vegas, which would not make a good musical. But anyway, (laughs) yeah, so Nicolas Cage is terrible and the plot is incredibly sexist. Okay. However, the film is still really great. The film was directed and written by Andrew Bergman, who almost immediately after completing the film felt like it would make a really great musical. Yeah, right. Um, He got sidetracked from that goal for a little while, but eventually it happened. So... Concurrently, J.R.B. had always enjoyed the film and wanted it to be a musical and so he wrote some songs for Bergman on spec um, and they teamed up. They agreed that they wanted to create a traditional book musical that sounded like it was from the 60s. Yeah. They decided to change very little about the plot. You may remember from the film that the mother dies and just makes Jack promise that he won't marry. In the musical she sort of curses him and is still like quite a presence in the story. It's kind of like it kind of reminds me of the in Fiddler, you yes. know, the, yeah, like the when dream, they have the dream. Sort of, yeah. yeah, it's like that. So she's still like a character and a presence. Um, it's an interesting change because honestly in the film Jack is the least sympathetic character like to ever exist in film. Yeah. So I think it was actually really smart change. I just wanted to briefly talk about those issues that I have with okay. Jack as a character. Jack is shit. Okay. He's the worst in the film. Here's a mini TED talk. <laughs> okay, he's just so bad. He yells all the time and is a dickhead the entire film. Like there's no redeeming qualities about him whatsoever. Yeah. Like n- no you just have no sympathy for him. I think Nicolas Cage has a lot to do with that. However, there are still huge issues with the character. He definitely doesn't deserve to have a happy ending. Right. I think the only reason why there is a happy ending is it seems like Betsy wants the security of marriage and wants to have children. Right. And eventually, like, he becomes the sort of lesser of two evils. Might you say it's the patriarchy? <laughs> I think the patriarchy has something to do with that. <laughs> Fuck you, patriarchy. (laughs) I obviously hate stories where women have to make, like, stupid, impossible decisions. Um, The film, if it were produced now, I think would end with Betsy telling them all to fuck off and just having a kid on her own. Yeah. Of course, that wouldn't have happened in 1992. Um, I like the way that they had to make the mother character more of an evil spectre in the musical to make Jack at least a little more sympathetic and a little more out, I I, I suppose a little less in control. Yeah. Because the way he behaves in the film is just like – what? Yeah, like it's just a bit It's silly. ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Like why does this woman even want to be around you? So in the film, Betsy is, and probably the musical, Betsy is treated as a possession. The men are all terrible. Something else notable about the film is you can see tiny little baby boy Bruno Mars as what? an Elvis impersonator. Oh, my God. He's very cute. That's awesome. He's prob- I don't know how old he would be, be like five or six or something, yeah. but he's like in a tiny little Elvis costume. Oh, that's it's, amazing. It's very amazing. Because he's from Hawaii, right? Oh, is he? Do you think they filmed it there? I think he's Hawaiian. Well, that particular scene is in Las Vegas. I don't know if they oh, filmed okay. it in Las Vegas, but yeah. Yeah. I think he's Hawaiian. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, production. Back to the musical. Yes. So the show was developed in the early 2010s and a Toronto production was scheduled for 2012, but that was cancelled. Couldn't find out why it was cancelled. interesting. But it just was. That production that was cancelled then moved to the Paper Mill Playhouse in New Jersey in 2013. Yeah. And that starred Tony Danza as Tommy, Rob McClure as Jack and Bruno Malley as Betsy. Right. That production was really well loved, but it only ran for a month. But, like, it had mad, mad, like. Yeah, um, I remember the buzz after the buzz. that production was massive. Massive. Yeah. Like, 
there are a lot of issues with the production that I'm going to talk about, but I think just remember that after that paper mill playhouse production, buzz was huge. Yeah. Everyone was talking about how great it was. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just remember that. So it then opened on Broadway at the Nederlander Theatre in November 2014. Yeah. Which is actually quite a, like a gap between the two productions, mm. between the Jersey and the Broadway. Featured the same cast. The reviews of this production were incredibly positive. And honestly, like I get it. I agree with the reviews. Um, it's so fun. It's light. It's ridiculous. It's toe tapping. The music is awesome. Like it's just, it's an infinitely sort of entertaining show. It's quite um, old fashioned. Like it's definitely like of, of yeah, another Yeah, like it's a era. proper book musical. Yeah. yeah. So, but the critics like were unanimously in love with it. It only ran for 93 performances and 66 previews. Yeah. Not a very long run at all. A flop, in fact. It just wasn't very well attended. Despite its consistently excellent reviews, it wasn't nominated for any Tony Awards, which was considered a bit of a jip, but also understandable because even though it was eligible for the 2015 Tony Awards, it closed before nominations day. Yeah. Um, that was the year of Fun Home, The Visit, Something Rotten and An American in Paris. So okay. A, a strong year, but... Still, it was certainly good enough to compete, I think. Yeah. Um, to have garnered no nominations is pretty shitty. It did get nominated for some Drama Desk Awards, though, like including Outstanding Music, Lyrics, Outstanding Orchestration, Sound Design, and Featured Actress for Nancy Opel, who plays the mother. She was, yeah, she was amazing. Still didn't win any of those. Yeah. Like, it won nothing. Um, so that was essentially Jason Robert Brown's fourth flop in a row. Yeah. Um, honeymoon... It then had a concert on the West End in 2017 at the London Palladium and that's really it, unfortunately, for productions. So I want to talk about why it flopped. Okay. Why did it flop with all those amazing reviews is the real question. So I've got a couple of theories and you might you might have a bit more yeah. of an idea. So then firstly the theatre itself, the Netherlander Theatre is actually a really difficult one for smaller shows yeah. to be seen. It doesn't get a lot of foot traffic. It's sort of like out of the way. It's the southernmost theatre yeah. Yeah, on like Broadway. On, on Broadway, that's right. So it's south of 42nd Street and it just like no one really goes by it to see the marquee. And like the show. when so, it, Yeah. So when Rent went yeah. in there, like it had, been, it, had been, it had been empty for years. That's right. And so a lot of. People are torn about like, well, it's it's the show's fault, it's not the theatre's fault and they quote Rent as being quite successful in there but also like that theatre had been really empty for a long time and yeah. Rent had already had a really successful off-Broadway run. And they kind of embraced yeah, where like that was it was part, and, yeah, it was part, it was part of, of Rent's thing. whole, yeah, but vibe. But to put like a traditional book, music, an old-fashioned book yeah. musical on it, that theatre is just like. Yeah. So I think that's got a bit to do with it. The show was originally going to go into the Atkinson on 47th, which could have oh, helped it, yeah, yeah. but just didn't. As well as that, the show opened properly in January, which is a really tough time for a show. Yeah, like it's, it's the slowest month. It's yeah. the slowest month. It's still four months away from Tony nominations day. It's the middle of winter. Like yeah. it, it's just not a really great time to open a show. Yeah. And it, unless you've got really deep pockets and you can last through winter, um, financially. Yeah. Um, I do actually think that the fundamental misogyny of the show was the real killer. Oh, interesting. Some people say as well that not having a big name in the show didn't help. So mm. like Tony Danza is still a big name, I'd yeah. say, but not like, oh yeah, we better go see Tony Danza. Um, but I think that the, the show is just generally quite misogynist. So they didn't really dress it like the issues that I've already spoken about with the film still existed apart from the mother thing. They still existed in the show. Like yeah. it's fundamental to the story and it's never really addressed. Um, and I just don't think a modern audience is happy to put up with that, particularly from a new musical. So yeah. I think like despite its older, like original influence with the film, it's just not necessary to recreate such rampant sexism. Like I think if you're doing – We've talked about revivals that are problematic and like reviving a show that is potentially offensive. I think audiences would be much more forgiving of an older piece of, of an older work that is of its time yeah. than they will of a new work. Mm. And a lot of people have said like they showed up and were just like, oh, wow, this is really sexist. Yeah. So that's interesting. Also there's elements of like some of the Hawaiian characters when they go to Hawaii are sort of like caricatures and that's not mm. great. Yeah. Um. I think too like some of the charm of the film is so there's a whole like subplot that at, in when they go to Vegas 
there's like an Elvis um, in like impersonator sort of like conference. Or yes, whatever yeah. And so a lot of the charm is like there's all these Elvises everywhere and all these costumes of Elvis everywhere, but also the soundtrack of the film is Elvis songs, like covers yes, of Elvis true. songs. And so it's got this really like tacky, Vegasy sort of glittery like undercurrent. Yeah. And that's missing from the musical because mm, yeah, they obviously that's don't use any Elvis songs. Yeah. That's just my that's my theory. But yeah, yeah. What do you, what do you, what's your take on the failure of it? So I saw the closing performance on Broadway, oh, wow. the Did very you? final performance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it happened to be that I was going to see it a week later, and then they announced the closing date, and yeah. so luckily I was already going to be there, yeah. and I was able to rebook and see the final show, um, which was quite special at the time because obviously I was already a massive Jason Aaron Brown fan, and so this was my first time seeing one of his shows, yeah, like a professional production of one of his shows. Well, there aren't that um, many, yeah, and so. Yeah, I was in the front row Mm -hmm. and he actually played like the on-track. He got up on stage and played the piano part for the on-track, which was cool. He was sitting like like down the row from me. Uh, Andrea Burns was sitting next to me Uh, because they're really good friends and all their families were there. And um, so that was quite quite amazing. It's funny. um, I often think about shows that don't have any seriousness in them Mm. and that, oftentimes they don't work. Like I loved the show. I thought it was so much fun. I thought it was, I thought the score was great. Everyone was performing at the top of their, their game. And, but it's almost like it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Like there's no depth. I think particularly in that Broadway season, there was like quite deep. Yeah. Like when you had a show like Fun Home and you had the visit, like, yeah. It, it just is like just a bit fluffy. It made me think the same I, when I finally saw 9 to 5 on yeah. the West End a couple of years ago um, and, you know, that's planning to come here at some stage to mm. Australia um, and people have asked me about it and I said, yeah, like it's it's actually really great fun. I, yeah. And that was also a big flop on Broadway. Yeah. And I just think it's like people need something to hang hang their hat on, you know, like, like it can't like, just be fluff. No, and I think for a lot of people going to a show on Broadway is like it's not a regular occurrence, it's an event. Yeah. And if you go to see a show on Broadway and it is just fluff, it's probably disappointing. Yeah. Like you've really built up the experience of going to Broadway. I um I don't remember thinking it was particularly sexist and misogynist, mm. but I don't know, me what seven, eight years ago is different to now, you yeah. know, like I also think too, like what what it probably has in its favour is that it feels like an older musical. Yeah. And you're going to forgive a lot more of that. Like yeah. If it, were, if it felt modern, there would be problems, but it, it's very much like, oh, this is from 1960. Yeah. And so maybe that it has that in its favour. I think so. But um, it also, I mean, it's, it's awkward, isn't it? But I, it was so sad at the time because it was like finally he's going to have a hit. That yeah. was when they talked, when we were Those talking reviews, about though. the reviews like from Paper Mill and, yeah. and I think it, I think even like Ben Brantley from the New York Times might have said in one of his reviews like. It was his pick. Yeah, it was a critic's pick. It was like, you know, finally Jason Robert Brown, this mm-hmm. could be his Broadway, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it just, yeah, it just didn't happen. It's really, particularly from Jason Robert Brown's perspective, it's really sad. Yeah. Because his score is amazing. Let me talk about the music actually. Yeah, okay. So I'm sure you've listened to us rabbit on about it before or if you have any taste at all, you will know that Jason Robert Brown is a master. Of course. He's just a master. Like he's essentially a jazz musician and this score really reflects that in a way that his others don't, Yes, that's true. Um, It's about as far from like parade as a show could possibly be. (laughs) Interestingly, he was writing Bridges of Madison County at the same time. Yeah, so Bridges comes out after 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 yeah. yeah um so in the interviews he and andrew bergman have said that they wanted to write what was essentially a golden age musical or like an early 60s musical so there's like bossa and swing and nothing too vocally taxing mm. which is very unlike jrb yeah like really there's nothing at the extremity of everyone no that's true um he just wanted to write a traditional musical comedy something from 1963 he has said in interviews that if he wrote something for the show and it sounded like him, it just wouldn't work and he would throw it out. Mm. Um, he was heavily influenced by Candor and Ebb and Cy Coleman for this one and the style and intentions of the music of the Muppets. I can definitely see Cy Coleman. Yeah. Yeah, I can see both of those actually. He yeah. talks a lot about the Muppets being like. <laughs> yeah, right. Like that was what this show is to him. It's yeah. Just like, it's like a, an episode of the Muppets. It is preposterous in that way too. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
it is infinitely listenable and not offensive. Like it's just a really easy listening yeah. um, score in a way that his others are just very intense and cerebral. This is not. No, and it's so fun so as well. Fun. Yeah, But also still clever. Like his lyrics are excellent. Yeah. It's just very good. Um, in, like I said, uh, he was writing Bridges of Madison County at the same time, two very different shows stylistically. He actually wrote the song It All Fades Away on the same day that he wrote the song I Love Betsy. No. Yes. Can you just imagine Oh, my God, that just blew my mind. An actual fucking genius. I love both of those songs so much. So much. They're, I think both the best songs of both of those musicals. Yes, I agree. And they're so different. How did he write them on the same day? Oh, Freak. I love that. Um, yeah. So he was having a good day. He was having a very good day. So I've mentioned that I think one of the problems with the show is that it doesn't have the Elvis thing, like, musically. However, having said that, it has fresh new songs which are awesome. Yeah. Like fans of the film probably won't appreciate the score, you know, like expecting that. Yeah, Elvis and I guess that's the other thing. Like I went in not having seen the film, yeah. not like, really if you caring. you the film, you'd be like, well, where's all the other songs? Yeah. Like, why? Songs? Yeah. Like, I think that's an important I Love Betsy yeah. is honestly one of the best musical theatre songs ever. It's so good. Right? Um, so clearly this is an important one. Don't miss it. Also, Rob McClure sings the shit out of it. I really love him. Isn't he so cute yeah. and charming? Um, I'm going to link to Rob McClure performing it, but also to Andrew Bart Feldman. I oh, know we've talked about this before. So good. <laughs> Ruth, you take it away. I know you love this. A couple, Well, a couple of friends watched um, Ratatouzical with me. Nice. And they... Um, uh, he was Linguini in yeah. Ratatouzical, which is perfect, it right? It is perfect, yeah. And they, I was like, they didn't really know who he was. So, of course, Andrew Bart Feldman was the winner of the Jimmy Awards, which is the National High School Musical Theatre Awards, when he was like a freshman, I think, or like yeah. a very early, like it's he like was 15. 15. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, he, and he did. He won with I Love Betsy from. When um, he was 15. Yeah, from Honeymoon in Vegas. And so I was telling them about it. And so he then went on to play Evan Hansen on Broadway yes. when he was 16. Yeah. Like, incredible. He's very good. He's very good. So talented. I showed them on YouTube him singing this yeah. after. Well, yeah. I'm going to link to that video too because he's just great. And it's just very different watching like a young person interpreter yes. compared to, say, Rob McClure, but it's still charming. Um, I So interestingly, I didn't mention this before, but I Love Betsy was the last number to be written for the show. Oh, okay. Which, of course, as we know, is a surefire way to write a hit. That's like, right. Same with the song Oklahoma, yeah. with The New World from Songs for a New World, with I'll Never Fall in Love Again from Promises, Promises. Yeah. There's been so many of them that are like, quick. Yeah. And it's just the best song. I also think you should listen to um, Anywhere But Here. Yeah. Which is um, like Betsy's main sort of like I want song, I would I suppose. say that's the only number that does sound like a Jason Robert Brown song. I agree. Yeah. I completely agree. I actually I toyed with not putting it on the Gateway playlist because it is quite different from the rest of the show, but I think it's a nice moment for the character. And, like, he knows how to write that sort of musical theatre song Very as much well. So. Yeah. I will say that Bruno Malley is just not that great on a cast recording. So Interesting. She's not vocally incredibly strong, mm. but... I know that she's great to watch and I think it's a nice solo in the show but also like her, just so you know, if you listen to it and you're disappointed, her role doesn't really demand that sort of a thing. Mm. So she, while she sounds not that awesome in the song, she's very good in the rest of the show. Um, the last thing I think you should listen to is Isn't That Enough, which is just a really sweet romantic song where um, Jack is finally trying to convince his mother that like, no, Betsy is really good for me yeah. and this is what I'm going to be doing. Yeah, okay. I'm going to be marrying her. It's just a really lovely song. Yeah. Um, What's yeah. the Elv- the one with all the Elvises that sing? That's really fun too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, God, I've been is listening it like to it all week. Higher, higher Ground or yeah, something it's, like that? Yeah, it's like that. Higher Love or something. Yeah, yeah, high, it's about yes, the, Higher Love, yeah. The, um, it's like a group of Elvises who, who skydive. Yeah. And so, like, Jack gets caught up with them and he has to skydive really into fun. it. It's very fun. And yeah. It's funny. And there's lots of funny puns about being yeah. up in the air. That one gets in my head every now and then. Yeah, that's a good yeah. song. I should put that one on too. But, yeah, awesome. that's Honeymoon in Vegas. Excellent. Mm. Excellent. Do you want to tell me about a musical? I do. I didn't realise we were doing a musical from the same Broadway season. I knew that. Did you? Yeah. I guess because it wasn't nominated for any Tonys. Oh, you didn't it, even think it of didn't, mine. It didn't, it didn't occur to That's me that really it was rude. in the same Broadway season. I mean, it's, I saw it in the same trip. Yeah. So I should have realised. Idiot. Um, this week, Josephine has mentioned my show several times already. I'm doing Fun Home this week. Interestingly, not very fun. <laughs> Interestingly, a total 
sort of bummer of a show. Sounds like it's going to be fun. It's not. No, it's, I have to say it is like, and revisiting this week, like it is such a heartbreaker of a show. Yeah. Do you know it very well? I don't know it like super well. Yeah. I know the story. I think I've even maybe read the comic, I want to say. Right, okay. Um, And I'm sort of semi-familiar with the songs, but I find it difficult to listen to. It is quite hard to listen to and I will talk about that quite a bit. So, like I said, it is a heartbreaker of a show. I first saw it during previews on Broadway in 2015. Um, it had a lot of buzz coming into its Broadway run and with good reason as obviously it ended up like being such a big hit. Um, I just remember sitting at Circle in the Square by myself and just crying my eyes out. Like yes. it is that sort of show. Like it is a real tearjerker. We've sort of mentioned it like obliquely in a couple of our mixtapes. Yes. But yeah. A fucking um, bummer. I also remember watching the 2015 Tonys with friends, like as we always do, we always get together and watch it. And the musical numbers had been like sort of somewhat lackluster that year on the Tonys and then the brilliant. Yeah, Honeymoon wasn't invited that's to right. perform. And then the brilliant 12-year-old Sydney Lucas came out and sang Ring, Ring of Keys and was like, 10 times more captivating by herself than any of these other performances had been. And it, it was such a simple performance too. It was just beautiful. Yep. Authentic. Just her. Oh. And she's so young and so, so small. And she's just so present. It, it's really quite incredible. I remember that that being the show that I, I guess it had never occurred to me before that children on Broadway because like, obviously in Australia and in the UK, child labour laws are such that you have to triple cast every child role, but that's not the case on Broadway. Which I think is pretty shit. It's pretty intense, isn't it? It's crazy. It's very American. Like if I was a parent and my kid was that good, which they would be if I, if I had a biological child, <laughs> um, but I'd be like, no, absolutely not. And it's, yeah, like a 12-year-old doing eight shows a week. It's, yeah. Insanity. It's, it's insane. Mm. So... She is, but yes, I just remember because also like there's siblings in the show as well and and they're also small children mm. and I just remember thinking, hang on. Yeah. How, what? You have a job. They do eight shows a yeah, week. It's It's insane. And I, it had never occurred to me before that. But like a lot of adults couldn't do that. Yeah. And uh, also the emotional toll. Right? Of that role. Mm. Oh, anyway. So fun home. So music by Janine Tesori and book and lyrics by Lisa Cron, Crone. Um. We, we've discussed Janine Tesori before in a, a few um, – well, in a spotlight we talked about uh, Soft Power. Mm. I talked about that a few weeks ago. Um, and we've also talked about her in a few mixtapes. But we've we never done – This a is the first of her musicals that we've covered as a main show. Yeah. So she's obviously known for like Thoroughly Modern Millie, Shrek, Caroline or Change, among other shows. Yeah. But like very sort of prolific yeah. musical theatre composer. Um, this is Lisa Crone's first and only musical. Wow. Uh, she's most known for her autobiographical one-woman plays that explore ideas of feminism, lesbianism, and Judaism, like just sort of being a woman in New York. Yeah, her experience. Yeah, and she just seems like an awesome person, I have to say. I would like to be her friend. Exactly. Not that I wouldn't want to be Janine Tesori's friend. No, I would also – I would like (laughs) to be both of their friends. (laughs) Definitely. Just Um, badass women. It is adapted from Alison Bechtel's 2006 graphic memoir titled Fun Home, A Family Tragicomic, Mm. which I just – it's awesome. It's a great – Yeah, and it was a very, very successful – Book, if you will, book, yeah, yeah. novel. Um, so the story. So the story is told from the perspective. Of, this is the musical I'm talking about, um, separate to the graphic novel. So this the story is told from the perspective of 43 year old Alison Bechtel as she traces her past and, in particular, seminal moments in her life, uh, her sexuality and her relationship with her father. She's portrayed by three actresses in total in the show. One uh, as Alison, her 43-year-old self, medium Alison when she's a 19-year-old college freshman, Hmm. and small Alison who is a 10-year-old. The scenes with small Alison explore her childhood growing up in Beach Creek, Pennsylvania, uh, uh, with her siblings, and their father Bruce was a high school English teacher and also ran the family business part-time, which is the Bechtel Funeral Home. Uh, How do you run a part-time funeral home? Right? I don't understand. I think because it was kind of part of the house. But how do you be like, sorry, we're not taking bodies today? Well, I think because it's such a small town, you could. Jeez. Like I looked and even now I think it's a population of 700, the town, and that's now. 
But they'd all be dying now. It better be a full-time <laughs> funeral home. Ooh. Ooh. Um, and so the title comes from the fact that the kids used to call it fun home. Funeral home is fun home. Yeah. Right? For short. Uh, the scenes with Medium Allison are as she's just gone off to college um, and realised that she's a lesbian. Uh, her subsequent coming out to her parents and her finding out that her father had been having affairs with other men her entire life, uh, including many underage men. <laughs> the story culminates in the moment only four months after coming out to her parents that Alison's father commits suicide by throwing himself in front of a truck. In real life, it's not actually like 100% certain that Bruce yes. Bechtel committed suicide. But that is Alison Bechtel's understanding of the situation yes. and that is how she interprets it and that's what's in the novel yes. and thus also in the, in the musical. But it was more like the coroner's report didn't conclusively Yeah, like I think, I think I guess there's a question over whether it could have just been a very tragic accident. Yes. But certainly she gets the sense that her finding herself kind of put her dad into a spiral yeah. of – him not being able to be who he truly was yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. And certainly like his mental state and, yeah, his exactly. alcoholism. Exactly. And, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, he, the, the character of her mother is explored quite a bit more in the musical than it is in, mm. the, in the novel. So she's just not um, sort of a massive part, I think, of Alison's life, if you will, even mm. like now. Um, uh, she died j- like a not even a year before the musical came out. Um, But Alison apparently was not perturbed by that. Like she didn't think it was – like it just wasn't that big a deal to her that she didn't get to see it. I don't get the feeling that they were like that close kind Mm, of thing. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, so she's she is fleshed out a lot more in the musical than she is in the novel. I find that character very intriguing. Like the mother character is a very interesting character. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, some history of the show. So it was first workshopped at the Ojai Playwrights Conference in August 2009. A staged reading was – In the where? Ojai, you know, in California. Oh. It's spelled O-J-A-I. Is that like that hippie sort of Yeah, town? I think there's lots of like Up yoga. in the mountains? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so I'm going to mention quite a few. It, it was a long development process. Um, a stage reading was performed at the Public Theatre in 2011. Judy Kuhn and Beth Malone, who played the mother and um, Alison, 43-year-old Alison, were in that. Uh, reading I love Judy and uh, oh, you love her so much. I do too. Um, they both remained with the show from that reading onwards, so that's like quite a long time that they were with it. Another workshop um, as part of the Sundance Institute's Theatre Lab in July 2012. Following that, it ran for three weeks as part of the Public Theatre's Public Lab series in October and November 2012, and a final Public Theatre workshop was held in May 2013. It then premiered off Broadway at the Public Theatre. Um, with previews on September 30th, 2013. The run was extended several times and the musical uh, finally closed on January 12th, 2014. But, like, it had heaps of buzz after yeah. that off-Broadway run. Like, I it do got, remember that. It, yeah. got, it got amazing reviews off-Broadway and, yeah, everyone loved it. Um, the musical begins previews at Broadway's Circle in the Square Theatre on March 27th, 2015 and closed on September 10th, 2016 after 608 performances. It recouped its capitalisation after only eight months. Jeez, so, that's um, great. Yeah, and I I see that as fitting into quite a common, you know, when we talked about the band's visit, this fits into it. Yes. Uh, I sort of think of something like Next to Normal as another example of. Just like smaller, small, cheaper but, shows. But successful runs, yes. like financially successful incredibly critically successful well, also just cheaper to produce yes yeah, small casts yeah simple sets exactly probably modern. smaller orchestras yeah, yeah, yeah all of that um it was nominated for 12 tony awards yes and it won five uh but some big ones it won best musical yeah. best score best book best director and michael serverus won best leading actor for his performance bruce. as bruce yeah. Bechtel. and uh you mentioned earlier but it beat an american in paris the visit and something rotten for best musical yeah a pretty heavy year big year yeah should have also beat honeymoon but anyway yeah uh, well, I think if Honeymoon, if nothing else, should definitely have gotten nominated for Best Score. 100%. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Or even like Nancy, anyway. Yeah. Uh, in January 2020, it was announced that Jake Gyllenhaal's production company would be adapting the musical into a film. 
and that he'd be playing Bruce Bechtel, but there has not been any news since then. How so. do you feel about him playing Bruce Bechtel? I think he'd be good. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, I've said it to you before, but when I saw him in Sunday in the Park with George, I was like, oh, he's incredible. So my sister has been saying this for years and years, yeah. how incredible he is, mainly because of Zodiac, I think. He is incredible. Well, I, I mean, I love that film. And also yeah. broke back. Like, he's amazing in that. Yes, yeah. Yeah, maybe I'd love him. Yeah. He's very handsome. He's definitely getting to be old enough as well. It's not like... Yeah, well, he'd be like, I sort of he's think in of his him, 40s. Yeah, I sort of think of him as being too young, but actually no. I think Bruce was definitely in his 40s when he died. Yeah. So, yeah. I just think of every, everyone has to be a lot older than me to be an adult. Yeah, but no, <laughs> that's right. I am an adult. Um, it was due to have its professional debut in Australia last year uh, in a co-production by Melbourne and Sydney Theatre Companies, but that was postponed due to COVID, of course. But it is happening this year in 2021 in and I am very excited. Yeah, me too. Can't wait. Um, so a couple of firsts about the musical. It is the first ever Broadway musical with a lesbian protagonist. That is such bullshit. Isn't it? Isn't that insane? <sighs> yeah. They've probably had, been... like, the prom, I guess, since, but, like, not many. I was going to say. Yeah. What the hell? Ridiculous. What's wrong with us? Yeah. Um, it was also the first time an all-female team had won best score. So, for example, like uh, Cindy Lauper had won, I think, with Harvey Feierstein. Yes. That sort of thing. Yes. Uh, obviously, Aaron's and Flaherty. Like, yeah. there had been teams where it was one woman and one man, but never and an all-female team. Uh, the Secret Garden Yeah, won, but that's... Um, Lucy Simon. Lucy Simon and... Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah, I, I don't know. No, I don't know. Oh, yeah. God. Um, Alison Bechdel, who wrote, so I'm going to talk about Alison Bechdel a bit because obviously she's a really fascinating person in her mm. own right. So she wrote the graphic novel. It's about her life. She's a cartoonist and is probably most famously known for her namesake, the Bechdel test. Uh, it came about after a conversation with her friend, Lisa Wallace. And, and in fact, it was her friend's idea. Um, and so sometimes it's referred to as the Bechdel Wallace test because it was actually her friend's idea. Nice. Um, it was also inspired by Vig- a lot of Virginia Woolf's writings. Uh, and it was first published in, in a cartoon of hers in 1985. So the, I didn't realize it was so old actually. The, the test. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that it was like, as mainstream for a long time. No, definitely wasn't. Yeah. Um, so the test is used to measure the representation of women in fiction. Yeah. But mostly film. Like it mostly gets used to talk about film. Interesting. Yeah, but that is the – so it asks whether a work features one, at least two women, two, who talk to each other, and three, about something other than a man. Oh, so if it satisfies that that criteria, it passes the test. And apparently only around half of all films released pass that test. Disgraceful. Yeah, and it's an it's it's a really interesting thing because there's lots of films say that could be otherwise inherently feminist but still don't pass the test because it is still about a man. Uh, yeah, like that could still be Relationships the. Relationships. Yeah. yeah. I remember I loved when, when the musical Six came out, mm. there was uh, I think one of the tag, like, not a tagline, but something that they said in an interview where it's like the most feminist musical to like still fail the Bechdel test. Like, yes. Because, of course, all it's they're so doing true. is talking about, about a man. man. Yeah. But they obviously see it as very feminist. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's, in- it's an interesting one. So Alison Bechdel wasn't involved in the writing of the musical, mm. but she does feel it really portrays the emotional truth of her story. Like yes. she's very um, – She likes it. She does a lot of press for it. You yeah. know, she did a lot of press for it and she's very sort of you emotionally involved. You could not be proud of it. No, exactly. It's so beautiful. Exactly. Um, so Alison's siblings, who are also characters in the show, interestingly enough, her brother, John Bechdel, has – grown up to be quite a successful keyboardist. Oh. He's he's mostly in metal and heavy heavy metal bands, including Wait, what heavy metal bands have a keyboardist? Ministry, oh, cool. Fear Factory, Static X, and several others. Huh. So like, yeah, it's just funny because I was like reading the Wikipedia page and like there was a link for the, and you were like, the well, character of John Bechtel and I was <laughs> like, okay. And yeah, he's a famous That's heavy cool. metal keyboardist. Yeah. Uh on Broadway, the two actresses who played Alison and Medium Alison would go running together and would also walk together around the theatre to the point where their pace and breathing would align as part of, like, really just feeling in sync 
yeah. um, you know, to like to perform the, the show. Person, yeah. yeah, yeah, which I thought was awesome. That is great. Um, when Fun Home was at the Public Theatre off Broadway, Lisa Crone, the lyricist and book writer, was also appearing as a, as an actress in the same theatre complex in a production of Breck's Good Person of um, Setuan. Oh, wow. Yeah, which I thought was awesome. That's so she would crazy. like run back and forth between them. I love she's that. just like that like downtown New York theatre performer yeah. who she's does everything. Like, she's always around. I love it. Yeah. I love it so much. Um, the musical has also really embraced its political theme. So in between its off-Broadway and Broadway runs, it performed in South Carolina uh, to pr- protest that the state legislature, their their decision to cut funding to the College of Charleston because it included Fun Home on a reading list, offending lawmakers who objected to the book's positive portrayal of lesbianism. There's nothing worse than positive portrayals of lesbianism. Like, Don't you to agree? Cut funding for that it's reason? such a bullshit. That is like, fucked. So petty too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why do you care so much about something? Oh, what I are you hate, so threatened I hate by? It. I hate Patriarchy. It. Piss um, off. The, car, the Broadway cast also gave a performance as a fundraiser in Orlando after the shooting at the Pulse nightclub in oh, 2016. Nice. They actually did the entire show wow. at a big theatre in Orlando just without set or much staging with the cast all on stage the whole show. Jeez. And um, Michael Cerverus wrote kind of like an op-ed in the New York Times after they did that mm. and he talked about how there were certain lines like because, of course, the father – you know, Bruce would sneak out and yeah, go to and go to gay clubs, and, and, gay clubs and, yeah. and and things like that. And there's a and there's a line where he sort of turns to his daughter and says, you know, there's this um this you know this place I know where you know they're not going to bother us and that oh. sort of thing. And and he's just said that those lines just hit so differently. And yeah, you know, yeah, it was uh, yeah really heavy, but apparently just like such Important. an amazing yeah. yeah. And they raised a bunch of money as well. Wow. Um, yeah, so I, like all in all, I do think that this is a show you have to see rather than listen to if at all possible. Mm. Um, it really works best when it's witnessed as one whole piece and it is incredibly powerful as that. I agree. Um, there is at least one cheeky Broadway bootleg on YouTube if you can find it. Um, or it sounds like a challenge. Really. Yes. Or if you're in Australia, I highly recommend trying to see it at either Melbourne Theatre Company or Sydney Theatre Company in 2021 uh, because it is an amazing piece of theatre. But, yeah, it's just like listening to the cast recording just, it just doesn't, doesn't – It's a lot of, like, dialogue on the cast recording that just doesn't give you the same sense as when you see it in person. Yeah. Um, there is – and you know, I'm going to talk about a couple of songs, but – there is a few standout songs, but mostly it's just about seeing it as a whole. As the a mu- whole work. The, mu- the funny thing is I would say that this isn't a sort of typical musical that I would normally like. Like a lot of the music is quite dissonant. Yeah. It's not really the sort of music that I tend Says to. Says a Sondheim fan. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean. Yeah, like I do. When we talk about the things that I don't like in Andrew Lloyd Webber shows, for example, the things that you love, yes. right, is a lot of that kind of yeah. awkward dissonant, a lot of um, – not perfect rhymes yeah. and things like that that I tend just aren't the things that I tend to gravitate yeah. towards in musical theatre. Yeah. But for whatever reason in this show, I think because once you've viewed it as a whole, it's such a beautiful piece of theatre mm. that I do still like those. Mm. Um, so I'm going to link to the original Broadway cast, obviously. There was also an off-Broadway cast recording, but it's not on Spotify. Mm. The main reason I really know that is because I bought it on iTunes years ago and Did I you? still have it on my on my phone. Is it a good recording? Yeah, I prefer the Broadway one. Yeah, it's probably just better. But, yeah. yeah. Um, So um, the off-Broadway cast recording is on Spotify. I'm going to link to that. Was it going to link? They did like a Spotify sessions Oh, I love thing. those. Yeah, and there's actually some quite cool, like there's like an a cappella version of, um, I think it's of Ring of Keys and like Excellent. they've turned one of the songs Telephone Wire into a solo song and there's like a cut song uh, that's like Pony Girl that Michael Cerverus does where it's only like 10 seconds of it is in the actual show but they've got the whole song on that and they talk in between it anyway it's really good so i'll link to that as well yeah cool uh and then just a few a few gateway songs so ring of keys that i mentioned before is small allison's song about really discuss like sort of the first moment she realizes maybe she's a lesbian when she's quite young where she's just really attracted to this powerful woman kind of thing you know like yeah. it's like she yeah. calls her an old school dyke that's what that's what yeah. um 43 year old Allison calls her and and 
it's just, yeah, she re- sort of realises what a woman can be, I think. And and how powerful and sexy they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. And so it's really amazing. Um, the Another song that I've uh, done on a um, mixtape before is Changing My Major to Joan, which yeah. is called Changing My Major, which is, again, after sort of her first sexual experience at college with, with a girl called Joan. It just her kind of so ecstatic about it and just being obsessed with it. And it, it is so a really. sexually satisfying. I kind of um, wish that. I wish that it was considered appropriate enough for like teenagers to perform. Yeah. Uh, that there was opportunities for that to happen because it is a fantastic, it's really funny and it's a great yeah. song. It's actually got some like great vocal moments in it as well. You can't let the teenagers sing about sex, uh, Ruth. They might want to have it. Mm, ridiculous. Mm. And then the final one is a song called Days and Days and that's uh, oh, yeah, a, song, good a song that the mother sings and she is this really kind of tragic figure where she's been quite aware all her life that, uh, that Bruce has Bruce been having gay, yeah. affairs with men but it's like you you just you put up with it that's what you did and um she's clearly just like a really unsatisfied yes exactly exactly and that's really what this song is about and of course Judy Kuhn it's kind of amazing as well because like she's like such a beautiful soprano and there's but then she's got such color as well in her voice yeah yeah and it anyway definitely listen to that one as well it's 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 a really great it's a again a heartbreaker of a song but yeah so I want to sing that one day yes I want you to sing I I sent you a text during this week to be like you should learn days and days yes I should it's beautiful Uh, but yeah fun home it's a beautiful show see it if you can Mm. um again I hope that shows like that get done more and more you know that we start to see some great amateur productions of them hopefully because it's the sort of show that People should see. Yeah, exactly. exactly. A, a lesbian out there might need to see. That's exactly you right. Know? Exactly. Yeah, we need to be representing people. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. That was great. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Um, so we will see you next Monday yep. for a mixtape. So thir- Nothing coming on Thursday. Yeah, so figure out something else for your Thursday. I'm afraid so. Um, and uh, you can find us on Instagram. Yeah. And or email us at myfavoritemusical at gmail.com. Yeah. And, yeah, have a good week. No, you have a good week. Thanks, Josephine. All right. Goodbye. Bye.